Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Institute for Government. I'm Hannah White. I'm the Director of Research here at the Institute, and I'm really delighted to welcome you here uh, this evening for our second annual Director's Lecture. Um, it's a great pleasure to introduce our Director, Bronwyn Maddox. Um, Bronwyn is going to speak for about 20 minutes this evening, and then she's going to be joined on stage by Rachel Wolfe and Liam Byrne who are going to uh, discuss with her the themes from her lecture, and then we're going to open up to a discussion from the floor. Thanks very much. I'll hand over to Bronwyn. Hannah, thanks very much indeed, and thanks to you all for coming to the Institute this evening. This is an annual lecture, but I must say, um, I had to keep refining it during the day to keep up with breaking news. <laughs> it's tempting to have a news feed running across the screen behind me so we can all keep up. Maybe just BuzzFeed after this morning. And we all in the Institute enjoyed, just in the past couple of hours, the comments by Robin Butler in the Lord's debate on Brexit, that the, the debate was striking a dagger into his soul and being technocratically minded here uh, provoked a certain amount of theological and physiological debate about whether you could actually do that. <laughs> there have been many points in the past year when I've thought we should thank government and parliament for keeping us so well occupied in this line of work. <laughs> The point of this annual talk is two things. It's to look ahead at the challenges that government faces this year, and it's to say what the IFG is doing and why. And I'm going to make several points. I'm going to start with Brexit, which dominates this year. And it seems to me the civil service has made the case very well that this can be done technically. The obstacles are political, as we and the world are now witnessing. The second point is that Brexit is consuming the capacity of government to address other problems. And whatever the outcome of Brexit itself, this matters, given the anger that many people feel that the system isn't working for them in some way. And the third point is that government needs to make the case for its ability to change things for the better, or a lot of what works well, and the skills of modern government that really have been learned over the past few decades could be thrown out in a call for immense change. First slide. This is uh, from our Whitehall Monitor report last week, and this is the Brexit's uh, impact on the size of the civil service. And I, as I said, um, feel we obliged to start with Brexit. They will come on to other themes. It shows that Whitehall has already added 8,000 people in the past year. It's coming up again there to reach a total of 392,000. But that begins to reverse a cut of what is almost 100,000 people since 2009. The low point since the Second World War of the size of the civil service is just back there in June 2016. Much of this new rise, not all perhaps, is due to Brexit, represents at least £300 million a year more before considering all the consultants, lawyers, new regulatory agencies, new customs and immigration staff still to be hired and so on. As I said before, it seems to me that the civil service has shown that Brexit is technically doable in the sense of preparing for negotiations, creating new customs, immigration, regulation once we've left the EU. Although it's a fair bet that quite a few parts of this work are going to need more money, more people and more time than is currently allocated. And in doing that, the civil service has had to sustain an extraordinary degree of ambiguity really planning several versions of the future at the same time. But officials in many areas of this work now need to know the destination if they're going to take much of this work further. And politics, as we can see, is the obstacle. We don't know yet if there is a deal that can satisfy the Conservative Party, Parliament, EU 27 countries, European Parliament, and the UK Cabinet. You often hear the calculation on the UK side that the EU 27 will do a special deal for us because we're Britain and our position is unique in our relations with the EU. The UK has made a reasonable case, I think, that such a deal could benefit both sides. But ministers and prime ministers have made a systematic mistake over the years, it seems to me, in interpreting supportive meetings with Angela Merkel or German car manufacturers as meaning that Germany is in some sense on our side and then to think that the rationality of a win-win deal is going to triumph over other concerns. That doesn't recognize just how important preserving the European project is to many of the EU27 countries. For them, preserving the clear advantages of being in the club may trump those questions of commercial interest. It's a mistake, too, 
for the UK government not to have conducted and published an economic analysis of what could be a considerable economic shock. Or of the uh, models of the opportunities which will exist and there are things like the chance to do trade deals, for example, firmly based on science in contrast to the EU's long-standing antipathy to genetically modified products to take just one, one possible opportunity. Thanks to someone in the cabinet and to BuzzFeed, that's been remedied this morning in a fashion. So we've had some leaked highlights of the economic models prepared uh, across the civil service and shown to the cabinet in private. But this is really no substitute for proper publication, which allows the models to be debated properly. Before this, the last published government projections were the Treasury models before the referendum. We shouldn't have had almost two years debate on the most momentous change that the country is making in its economic relations without any economic analysis. David Davis's evasions about economic impact statements in front of the Commons Committee last year were not a high point, I think, in the handling of Brexit. They were, I mean, to put it bluntly, an affront to the principles of basing decisions on evidence and of Parliament being able to hold, hold ministers to account. It's obviously an inconvenient truth that all projections in this latest modelling appear to show a hit to growth over the next 15 years compared to staying in the single market and customs union. Though I note the comments by Steve Baker, the Brexit minister, uh, this afternoon that the modelling doesn't yet take account of opportunities, which seems an omission. But that's not a reason for not publishing them. For a start, the argument that the government can't publish them without giving European negotiators an advantage doesn't seem to me to stack up. EU countries can work out the UK's sensitivities perfectly well. But far more important, there is a real need to give Parliament and British people time to consider the inevitable trade-offs in any deal. Maybe they come to the conclusion that the benefits of Brexit outweigh any economic losses. That's a political decision. Fine. Maybe they disagree with the models and think that they can show why different assumptions should be used. Those are discussions which cannot take place if the government doesn't conduct and then publish proper economic analysis. And we regret that this seems to be delayed now. The government is also not being straightforward about the time that Brexit is likely to take. There's been a lot of playing around with the language of implementation and transition. We can all see the need for that linguistic dance, but at some point we do need to come up against reality. And it's clear that the UK will need quite some time to implement the terms of a deal once we actually know what they are. And that deal may well take longer than the mooted couple of years for transition that people have been talking about. As an example of the time normally thought necessary to adopt changes, our Brexit team in a, a customs paper some months ago came up with uh, some interesting figures. They said that the EU agreed new customs regulation in 2013, for example, but gave governments and businesses seven years to comply with it. And for really minor change to imports, a new piece of paper for goods coming from the outside the EU, just that, just that change, businesses were given 18 months to adapt once government had already uh, made its side of the changes. Stepping back, it's impossible to overlook the impact of Brexit on government overall, as well as all those who've been hired. Many of those officials working in key departments, such as the Home Office or DEFRA, have, really, have also been diverted onto Brexit-related work. Some civil servants tell us a very positive story about these kind of changes, about the collaboration and the creativity that has come from throwing together people who've never met with careers in very different parts of government onto a project which has indisputable urgency, scale, and national importance. But whatever form Brexit takes, we do have the prospect that a whole cohort of the brightest, most committed civil servants, politicians, parliamentarians will dedicate a lot of intelligence, energy for many years to this project. And for all the positive changes that Brexit might indeed achieve, it's impossible to overlook the opportunity cost, what it's hard for government to do at the same time. So I want to turn now to some of those wider problems facing the UK and its government. These are enduring problems which need more political focus than they're currently able to get. And indeed, anger at these appears to have been one of the roots of the vote to leave and the general election result. So it's come on to wider problems. 
We have here a picture of um, one of the many uh, charts that the Office for National Statistics produces on the UK's productivity, this one compared to other key countries. And those of you familiar with these charts will know um, that though this one doesn't show it, the past 10 years have seen a period where that has, has really stalled. Productivity is one of these persistent problems. Wages, jobs, and well-being, even as it might be better described to people to try and convey the importance of it to their <coughs> lives. It's right up there in any list of our biggest national challenges. And the effect of failing to crack the problem is clear. The Office of Budget Responsibility trimmed its forecast of UK growth from 1.8% to 1.4%, just ahead of the autumn budget, largely because of disappointing productivity. And that, as we all know, constrained the Chancellor in what he was able to do in that budget. Is it a problem for government to solve? I mean, you might say, as Andy Haldane, the Chief Economist at the Bank of England, has done, that poor business management is one really big cause of this. It's made him, obviously, fabulously popular among businesses. But it's certainly a problem that governments have thought that they should try to solve. And likely solutions have been staples of many governments' pledges for years and years. Again and again, we've seen governments come in and propose improvements to infrastructure, industrial policy, further education, regional policy, and these days, housing gets a big mention, and the word digital is sort of sprinkled over everything. So if you come to this, this is one of our favorite charts, which I'm not going to ask you to read in detail, though it is on our website. And what it is, it shows the uh, energy and initiatives thrown at the subject of further education since 1964. The top line of purple boxes, right at the top, is the policies put in place since 1964. Then the next one down, the sort of pink, there is that is the programs. The grey is the new, the middle kind of slice of that is the new organisations. And the rest of the bottom is the thin line is departments. And then down at the bottom, all the people, the ministers and officials uh, uh, involved in heading up those projects. And we have almost identical charts on industrial policy and on um, impulses. I'm not going to call them all policies on uh, giving more power and money to the regions. We are seeing some progress now, finally, on further education, technical education, deals giving more, more power to city regions. Some would say the same on infrastructure, although, in our view at the Institute, the decisions in this area are still seriously erratic in the, the way that they look at costs and benefits and the treatment of risk. It's too often, um, it seems to us, that the country is presented with a choice between something big, expensive and late, or nothing at all. We've done uh, a long report on this, a long series of reports on this in this year, as you will know. But government needs to demonstrate progress on these kind of fronts to reassure an impatient and increasingly sceptical electorate. Another area of heated debate we might talk about is public services. For very good reasons, there is a lot of discussion now about what we want and what we can afford with an aging population. So can they be managed more efficiently? Well, that's part of the debate. And up to, up to a point, we publish a, an annual uh, report which we created called Performance Tracker. And this is one of the charts from it. It's on uh, prison funding, prison spending at the bottom, and then assaults within prisons uh, are the line going steeply upwards. And we created this report for one you know, very clear reason. It's to show money going into public services, and then in a sense what comes out, what, what, what the services actually are uh, coming out. Astonishingly, the Treasury doesn't really do that. It gives departments a number, a spending number every year, tells them to stick within it, monitors whether they've stuck within that, but it doesn't really look at performance in this, this sense, and that's why we wanted to do that. And our report overall shows something absolutely compatible with that picture, which is that for a few years after austerity came in or after budget cuts came in, there were... Uh, there were quite a few years when many services managed to produce pretty much the same output with less money. I'm not taking here assaults as um, a complete proxy for you know, obviously what's going on in prisons, but it, the chart is uh, uh, very similar to many that we run in that um, uh, complex and detailed report. But after this f the first few years, in many cases, the financial squeeze was then followed by a deterioration in results. And as I said, we've seen this in quite a few public services. We're very careful what we say about cause and effect. We're not claiming that the figures we track amount to the whole of what you might mean by performance, but the pattern you see in this chart is one that we found in many places. 
All this at heart rests on a political decision, not a technical one, what British people want in the way of public services, and whether if those services can't be run more efficiently, taxes need to go up to pay for it. And that might in turn bring us to some of the toughest questions about running a modern democracy, such as whether government can actually raise more tax or not. Is, for example, as one live debate, corporation tax broken beyond repair if it can't be collected systematically from the tech giants, for example? Some, some argue that look, corporation tax is one side of a bargain struck back in the Victorian era and limited liability was the other side. And if, but if governments can't get companies to pay tax or to comply with other concerns about security and regulation, then that bargain is looking rather strained. These are all difficult questions. They go really to the heart of running a modern government. The answers may be very unpalatable or hard to bring about, but they deserve a government's time. And any UK government needs to show that it's got answers if it's going to offer British people the hope of prosperity and a role in a globalized world. So what are we doing at the IFG about this to help government tackle these challenges better? I'm indebted to Nick Davies, who no coincidence runs our infrastructure team for pointing out that we work in what is literally an ivory tower. <laughs> but we're very practical. We've run, just in the past year, more than 150 public events, roundtables, private discussions and training sessions, published more than 35 big reports and several hundred other charts and bits of analysis online. We've got three themes to our work. I don't mean the kind of subject headings, but the themes that run through our work. One is decisions and delivery. And what we're going to look at, in the, uh, uh, one is decisions and delivery, one is professional skills, and one is accountability. Decisions and delivery. We, what are we going to do in the coming year? Well, we're going to begin with, oh, sorry, it's now up here. Right, you have them in their glory. Um, let me start with that one, though. Treasury and public spending. In the coming year, we're going to look at the Treasury's role, and in particular, on its financial management and the management of public spending, very much as I've been talking about in the context of our performance tracker. We'd like to see the Treasury anticipate and be responsible for the outcomes of spending allocations, not just whether a, uh, a department has stuck to its budget. And social care would be one good example. It's all very well to say to local government, look, you've got complete freedom. Do what you like with your budgets, but please do them with 38% less. Um, and not uh, reckon that uh, there's going to be some problem with social care down the road, as indeed we've seen. Outsourcing, all too topical. We've been working on it for years. We're going to take a new hard look at what works and what emphatically doesn't. This is going to build on our previous work about the role of markets in public services more widely. And we've got two or three main conditions for this working. That there's a market in the service, that you can measure performance, and that the, the thing that you're outsourcing isn't integral to government's identity and reputation. We're going to look at those cases that have worked, where markets are not really markets, even though they're sort of spoken of as markets, when and how services should be taken back into government, and uh, perhaps most uh, pressing, given the Karelian uh, situation, what governments should do by way of scrutiny to make sure that services keep running, protect the public, and suppliers if a company fails, or indeed begins to fail. I've had a lot of conversations on this in the past few months. Uh, all such exchanges welcome, I should say. Some of you involved in that um, here today. Next one, infrastructure, year-long project. Uh, final report published next week. And we've uh, been called into departments to discuss in particular uh, our work on the failings of cost-benefit analysis and some of the financing of infrastructure reports. Uh, look out for that next week tax or how to make tax policy. We've had a big success with persuading the Chancellor last year to adopt just one uh, budget per year, one fiscal event. And it was cited, uh, our work on that cited extensively recently by the members of the Finance Bill Committee. We'll keep going on that. Health and social care. New, new project just starting now, which focuses on government's ability to deliver unpalatable solutions, actually get them taken up not just through the famous honest public conversation, which people are very fond of recommending. Okay, we're not against that, but 
uh, through other things as well, like creating bodies such as the Office of Budget Responsibility or commissions. Sarah Wollaston, who's chair of the Liaison Committee and the Commons Health Committee, was here last week on this stage, floated the option of a parliamentary commission on health and social care. We'll look at that too. This is building up to the 70th anniversary of the NHS later this year. And Brexit. We have done lots. Negotiation, customs, immigration, trade, uh, the, the European Court of Justice and how to resolve disputes after Brexit. Our work's been used by the European Commission and Michel Barnier's team. And before you think I'm partisan, by UK departments as well, who've called us in for many briefings and uh, we've talked to a lot of foreign governments about it as well. And what's coming up next in that work is uh, some interesting problems that Brexit may pose for devolution, for the devolved settlements, for the devolved nations of Wales, Northern Ireland and Scotland, and whether future trade deals might cut across the, uh, the, the uh, rights that the devolved nations uh, have at the moment, say in uh, environment and agriculture. We'll do more on transition as that moves along. Uh, more on the views of the 27 countries and how Britain should take account of those uh, in trying to negotiate. And coming up very soon, more on the state of Whitehall's preparedness for this, including the overall cost of Brexit. Professional skills, the second area. We work with politicians and civil servants. Let me start with the politicians. Uh, but it's one of our big themes that, that, to say that you need professional skills in these jobs, even if routes into these jobs may have come from many other walks of life. And if you don't come with them, um, how best can you acquire them? Okay, this is a slide from our Ministers Reflect uh, program, which talks to former ministers uh, who've spoken with extraordinary um, honesty and uh, candor about um, some of the most difficult things they faced and the kind of authentic conversational tone of that is really uh, very <coughs> refreshing. I was um, concerned when I first heard of it uh, that it might seem um, just a stage for ministers to boast about what they've done. Not at all. It's really, really the kind of voice of modern government about how hard it is to do that job. We've held private sessions with more than 100 ministers, MPs and peers helping them take on their roles. Inevitably, this work is not publicized. It's private conversations to try um, to do things like set up their office, work with the civil service, uh, prioritize, get expert on their priorities, that kind of thing. It's George Freeman, the MP, conservative MP and uh, former minister who's just joined our board, in fact, has said, there's no training, no guidebook, no manual, no induction. You leave the cabinet room with promotion ringing in your ears and walk straight into the department and start doing the job. Tomorrow in Speaker's House in the Palace of Westminster, uh, in front of an audience of MPs and, and peers, we're joined by Ken Clark and Jack Straw uh, for an event on how to be a minister, which is part of this work. We also do some work with any opposition prepare, uh, preparing for government in the run-up to elections, if we can see them coming. Let me turn to the civil service and professional skills. This is a slide of uh, John Manzoni, the chief executive of the civil service. And uh, he's touched on many of the themes we are most uh, concerned about here and most committed to doing work on. We're delighted that he raised in a speech last week one of the issues that we really have been concerned about, the turnover of staff in the civil service. This is encouraged by the pay and promotion systems which reward people for moving on. You have to change job in order to get more pay or to get promoted. We're running a big project this year arguing against this and about what might be done instead. For exam example, encouraging people to develop within one of the, the professions like finance, or commercial or digital or so on. John Manzoni argued, experience matters which requires staying in one job long enough to gain that experience. We're also, as I just said, very supportive of the development of the professions in the civil service. And it's something of a jargon word for something that is really important of developing the specialisms and, um, on, on things like finance, commercial, meaning how to strike commercial contracts with those outside government, human resources, law, and, and digital, uh, digital government. 
We regret a point that some of you will um, not have missed that we made, that the Treasury has departed from having someone with accounting experience in charge of public spending as part of all, uh, of all this, we regard as a backward step from the 2013 Financial Management Review. But there's many talented people in the finance profession, and we hope that the Treasury makes sure that one uh, or more is ready to run public spending in the Treasury when the job next comes up. We've done a lot of private work with those running the, um, the, the policy-making profession within the civil service as they try to formalise the skills that they feel that people specialising in policy-making need. And the next step we'll focus on will be digital, where we're going to look at responsibility for standards and for cybersecurity. Part three of our work, accountability. We've got Parliament and select committees. Since the general election, We've worked with 10 Commons committees to help them get better at asking questions, doing research, generally scrutinising government, holding it to account. Looking at lines of responsibility for people who take decisions. We've got a current big project on accountability in modern government, and it looks at those lines of responsibility, including in chains of contracts stretching into the private sector. So it looks at some of the old questions about uh, whether ministers and civil servants should be responsible to Parliament and exactly how and who uh, holds that relationship. But it also looks at things of which uh, the Grenfell uh, catastrophe was an unfortunate, uh, really terrible example of how the uh, contracts going deep into the private sector can make questions of accountability much more murky. Data and transparency. We have a long-standing programme of work here on this, and you will get... Uh, later this year, our top 10 list of what the government should collect, use and publish. This isn't just, though it is, uh, a call for government to publish more and to be more transparent, but it's also about making the point that government needs to actually to collect the data to be able to use it itself to run government better. If you come to the question people ask me um, quite often, um, he's on a Friday, um, rather wearying way, are we making progress? This is a flattering slide of Whitehall and Westminster, if not from 30,000 feet, then from 5,000 feet, about as high up as we can get. Um, yes, is, is my answer to that question. And I mean that generally for you know, British government, not just the IFG, though we would claim some successes as well. There has been a broad consensus for a couple of decades, it seems to me, around the centre ground and around some technocratic solutions as well. Those aren't the same thing, I'm not saying they're the same thing. A lot has been learned and the techniques developed for running a modern government have been refined. You've got a lot of thinking about the role of markets in public services, even if, where, you know, even if there are still considerable problems. A lot of thinking about devolution, the value of professional skills, the value of data and transparency to government, as I was saying, as well as to people and businesses. How to run a government in the digital age. In a country where public administration hasn't really been a subject of dedicated analysis, much more thought is now given than it used to be to the practice of government, to the, the technical skills of how to run a country. But we've moved into much more polarized times. Many people feel a sharp anger that the system is not working for them. There's a battle of ideas going on and some of it is now about the techniques of government themselves. The danger is that people demand change of a kind and scale that will not solve their problems and are then disappointed and angry when no remedy arrives. And in turn, the danger is that government can lose the tools to govern, lose the sense of public legitimacy, the ability to persuade people that difficult policies are sometimes the right thing to do. So there is a real urgency, it seems to me, for the need for government to be able to persuade people the value of what it does, to show them that it really can make a difference. Thank you. Right. Now going to be joined on stage by Rachel Wolfe, a senior fellow here. Can we come and join them? I can introduce you properly. And Liam Burr. Great. Rachel is, as I said, a, se a senior fellow here and was a former advisor to David Cameron and is now running uh, Public First, which is a public policy uh, agency 
um, group and doing a, a analysis on that and was also a founder and director of the New Schools Network. Ian Byrne, uh, MP for Birmingham, Birmingham Hodge Hill, um, is, uh, was former Chief Secretary to the Treasury and has much to say about the Institute itself. Let me, let me just ask you, and I've asked you both up here, um, thanks, to add a bit of um, uh, political grit, if you like, and uh, experience from the coalface in these kind of things. And one of the things that I was talking about is why um, perhaps best advertised by that uh, further education chart is why the country gets very, very stuck on some things, keeps coming back to the same problems and can't seem to progress. What's your feeling having been um, trying to solve exactly some of these things about why things get so stuck? Rachel, what do I start with you? Uh, so I'll, I'll come back to some of the things that I, I talked about when you wrote that report, which is so there seem yeah. to be two, two separate questions. The first is, why are there some issues, and further education and technical education is probably the worst of the lot, um, that are so prone to endless churn and endless papers where it's completely um, impossible to tell which was written when, except that uh, the way that um, people express themselves has changed slightly over the last century, but always talks about the same problem, always talks about the same sort of vague solutions. Um, and it seems to me there are um, three things. The first is that there are some areas which matter a lot to people in the country but don't matter terribly much to the sorts of people who make policy and make political decisions. And technical education is definitely in the ca that category. It's other people's children, so it's very easy to change all the time because you're not going to have a dinner party and people aren't going to shout at you in that dinner party about what you're doing. So that's number one. Number two, and I think I'm not sure that this is changeable, but um, and I I'm part of this problem, but... Um, uh, I have been in many, many hundreds of policy discussions of different kinds in think tanks, in governments, in political parties, and, um, and people quite often complain about the fact that we get endless change and then they immediately move on to advocating the precise change that they would like to see. Um, I've, I've yet to say, and you know what, I think I'm therefore going to dump all of my great ideas and, uh, and, and stick with whatever we've got. Um, we have a profession that, is, um, that, that tries to drive change. The third reason, and I was thinking about this um, recently uh, with the um, free school results uh, that came out recently. There have been a number of schools that have got a um, huge number of children into Oxbridge. Uh, free schools are now showing that they're top of the progress tables. Is that most policy takes a very, very long time to show results. Mm. Um, so even that relatively small policy, one that I've been very involved with, but relatively small on the scale of government, um, all of those results were baked in a decade ago. That's when we were talking to the groups. That's when they were starting the schools. Um, uh, and it has taken, I think, a rather unusual level of determination to see that policy through, through quite a lot of controversy and disagreement, to get to the point where you're able to demonstrate those results. Um, I can think of very few politicians who have shown that level of determination and consistency. And it's also been relatively unusual that we've been willing to keep people in their place long enough to see that through. So it just takes a while. And we're, um, we're very uh, unwilling to wait. Um, so I think those together often mean that we um, just end up churning endlessly. Mm -hmm. So the, the stuck, stuck government. <laughs> stuck, stuck Britain. So, so, so the truth is that we are. We have become very bad at building institutions for quite a long time now. So, if you look at a couple of the areas that you highlighted, if you look at technical education, um, if you look at business support, uh, if you look at industrial policy, the the ecosystem of institutions that we've got in those policy fields are, are really poor. Um, you know, and the irony is, you know, we designed after the Second World War a brilliant technical education system for Germany and then sort of forgot to implement one mm. here. Um, and so that, that sort of provoked me just to look back at a sec at um, when we were really good at this. Um, and you've got, <laughs> you've got to go back a long way. You've got to go back about 76 years, in fact. So you mentioned that you know, the, the civil service is now at its smallest ebb since, since the Second World War. And just a bit up. Just, just, a, yeah, just yeah. A, a, a wee bit a up. A Brexit so, up from that. So I was looking back at this, uh, thinking about tonight, um, and it's actually November 1942, one of the, one of the great moments in, in British uh, civil service history. 1942 is the publication of the Beveridge Report. And 
It comes just after our victories in North Africa, in Guadalcanal, we've turned the tide in Stalingrad. And there's, for the first time, a real sense of what are we fighting for? And onto the stage strolls William Beveridge with the Beveridge Report. And it, it instantly becomes the most successful government white paper until the inquiry into the Profumo Report uh, a few decades later. So that sort of proves the eternal truth that sex and social security aren't really a fair competition. But what happens next is what's interesting. So what happens next is the biggest revolt of the Second World War in Parliament. So um, Jim Lewis, who is the, uh, Jim Griffiths rather, who is the rebel, leads a rebellion of over 100 Parliamentary Labour Party members to insist that planning for implementation begins immediately. Attlee goes to Churchill, says, look, can't hold the tie back any further. We have to set up a reconstruction committee. And this extraordinary reconstruction committee with Morrison, with Bevin, with Attlee, with Dalton is set up and it creates the blueprints for an institutional revolution in government. So the Social Insurance Act, the 1944 uh, white paper on full employment, absolutely revolutionary. But obviously alongside it, you've then got the creation of incredible kinetic energy in government to actually implement the blueprint. And the challenge that we've got in a number of policy areas is that we have become less good at knitting together the essential cross-party, cross-political consensus that is the foundation of stable institutions. And on the other hand, we've not been so great at building uh, those kind of centres of kinetic energy in the centre of government to actually implement it. Uh, and that is really, really hard. So, you know, I was on the kind of cusp of Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. Tony had a, a, a magnificent infrastructure, you know, Prime Minister's strategy unit, Prime Minister's delivery unit. I mean, by the time he left office, he had a pretty high-performance car built at the centre, and actually he was pretty adroit at driving it around the track. Now, when I went into Number 10 to reorganise Number 10 for, for, for Gordon Brown, it, it, it was a very sort of different and slightly sort of sorrier sort of story. But Gordon had good ideas about how you knitted together the centre of government, but it actually took us quite a long time to develop National Economic Council, Domestic Reform Council, Political uh, Democratic Renewal Council. It, it took us a while to to build that infrastructure um, and many that, that those, suited and many, Gordon's many the, model. And many of those have gone. I mean, you're describing... And then they were swept away. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't know what's yeah. happened to number 12. So the, my first day, we were, I was sort of shepherded upstairs for this extraordinary breakfast with Michael Bloomberg. And um, Michael Bloomberg, I don't know how he had done this, but he had, he had sort of smuggled in the plans for Bloomberg headquarters in New York. And I was marched downstairs to what, to by what, Michael. Make, well, to make what point? No, because no. Michael Bloomberg had built in New York this incredible war room where mm. all of his key personnel were basically arranged on a table around him. And so Gordon thought this was a magnificent idea. So <laughs> we, we had to pick up these bloody plans, march downstairs and try and figure out where in Downing Street we could build <laughs> this sort of Michael Bloomberg-esque war room and we realised the only place you could build it in this lovely sort of Georgian house was number 12 so we had to throw all the whips out and create this um, perfect war room um, and it, it was perfect in every respect apart from the one error we made which is that we put a, a huge flat screen television on the wall opposite Gordon's desk which meant that very often we were governed by what the headlines were but otherwise it was, um, it was a work of art Blueprint for the future, I'm, yeah. I'm sure Ra But you've got to do two yeah. things, you've got to have yeah. cross-party consensus around institutions and you've got to have governing capacity at the centre and actually right now we're not good at both and that's why yeah. we're running into the second problem you highlighted tonight. Yeah. Uh, Rachel, how long do you think ministers need to stay in their jobs to have a chance of getting something done? I mean, we were just said part of our Whitehall Monitor report last week showed that two-thirds of ministers, particularly the junior ones, have, have been put in their posts very, very recently. Well, certainly the ones, the ones that I can think of who have really done something have been there at least almost to Parliament, if not yeah. longer. Um, and they've often, which is the other point, come from thinking about these issues in opposition. So they've had a really long time to think things through. And one of the things that I find quite striking when I think about ministers who've moved across, or Secretary of State's moved across, is how much they've used the principles and ideas from the area they've had the time to think about and just try to apply it to this new area because they simply haven't had the capacity to think about the new one, because the truth is that many of these many of these issues aren't perfectly transferable. Um, so, so longevity definitely 
matters, um, as does bringing in other people who've had a chance to think about the, um, about the area. I know that this is not a popular mm. thought for the civil service, but um, one of the things that I think this government could be doing a lot more, and again, sort of, I think about people who've been really successful as ministers, they bring in outside talent and they give them room to, to, to drive things through. Um, uh, because well, you have such would say that would say that it does, but that, that is a big subject. Oh, so, but I think, but I think it yes. also matters that politicians are able to do it themselves and pick yes. it themselves. Because yes. I mean, this is a really bizarre system. I mean, compared to anything else, where you really cannot pick more than a couple of people to be at your yes. side when you're trying to drive through major change, and you have no real say in who mm. the individuals are. It's it's mm. just not natural. Um, and being able to pick people, whether it's through mm. reviews, through non-executive bodies, whatever it is, and actually give them room to manoeuvre, <coughs> makes a massive difference because you're just quadrupling your team. Mm. We could carry on with even just that point for quite a bit. Yeah. Um, are there any questions? More uh, generally, otherwise we will carry on. <laughs> um, here at the front. Thank you. Uh, Vicky Price. Uh, Bronwyn, you mentioned cost-benefit, mm. and, uh, and you were rather disparaging about it, which is quite interesting. Uh, Having been involved with the uh, Government Economic Service, um, uh, we, we were quite keen to make sure that proper cost benefits were done, and the politicians, of course, would step in and, and want us to redo them and redo them and redo them until they prove their point. Mm. Um, is, is there something you found is, is now even worse than before? And I'm thinking of areas like HS2, for example. Uh, I'm not touching on Brexit, of course, um, where I'm pretty certain the cost benefits are, are pretty horrendous in terms of uh, what they show the cost would be. Uh, but are you actually suggesting, uh, interestingly enough, you didn't mention in your professions, the economists, the statisticians, mm. Uh, mm. you mentioned all the others, and, and I agree with you entirely, procurement in particular is an area of weakness in government. But there are those professional bod bodies, if you want to call them that, yeah. rising through the civil service, uh, and they have come under, thing under quite a lot of, of stress recently uh, because of, of um, of the, if you like, the politicians not necessarily wanting to listen to them. Uh, so how, how uh, what, what's your view about the, the, the power, if you like, of the professionals right now? Right, you've got several points in there, and on the cost-benefit analysis, uh, one, um, um, I don't think it's an alternative to, to cost-benefit analysis, but it's, it's how, what, it, what is put in there, and uh, you're right, our excellent long report on this did indeed find many examples of where it was bent to serve uh, uh, to serve uh, things that have been decided first, if you, if, if you like. Um, and we made many recommendations for using it better. The economic service is an interesting case. I mean, I, I think it is, has got stronger. I actually don't agree with you about the commercial profession, which I think has got much, much stronger uh, from where it is. If you talk to the heads of, well, not even the heads, of, of outsourcing companies, they set up this lament, which seems to me they have, they have at least half a point that the government has got much, much better at driving down the margins uh, in striking contracts with outside companies, and that is, uh, they would argue, one of the reasons they're suffering problems at the moment. But it is, it, it, is, it is patchy, and I think what you need in the professions is people to be able to have a career within that um, and um, you know, to, be, to be rewarded within that. Um, it's um, and not to be seen as the... Uh, uh, I don't want to say. Uh, anyway. It wants to be ignored, yes. If possible, yes. Yes. Um, let's go straight behind you. Thank you. Bonnie Sands, Parliamentary Radio. It was a very hard-hitting speech, particularly when you talked about the failure of the government to publish uh, an economic analysis of uh, Brexit. But you talked about the public's sharp anger at the moment, and perhaps the responsibility and failure of government, but you stopped short of talking about that being a failure of democracy, uh, and yet you hinted very strongly that it is a failure of democracy when the public don't have faith in government any longer. Is there a reason why you, you didn't mention the larger issue of the faith in democracy? I think there are issues about democracy, but they don't they come out of that. No, I, didn't, I, I don't see... What, what are you saying is the failure of democracy? Well, in if, this? Government fails, if government fails, yeah. and, and it fails to sort of uh, provide for the public, whether that's because public services are being cut and there's not enough for social care, or whether it's because the economic analysis mm. hasn't been published for Brexit and it should have been, 
But, but that in turn leads to an erosion of faith in democracy. It's not just an erosion of, or a failure of government is seen as a failure of democracy. I think that There's is a, a much wider bigger, issue. I, it is a much wider issue, but it is so much a wider issue, I think, that it isn't, um, I, I don't think you can b blame simply government for this. There's many, many things going on of which the breakdown of political parties, really, and the, they're not mapping uh, as well onto voters' concerns as they used to is, is part. But no, you're talking about people's loss of faith in being represented. Um, and that is a much bigger subject, which I think is, um, is rightly beyond what I was talking about. I, I think they don't, I deliberately didn't join it up in that way and don't intend to. What, what, do you, what do you both feel? I mean, Liam, as a representative of this, does it feel like you're in a system that is, um, where people are really challenging the whole yeah, system? Yeah, but, but this is not unique to us. I mean, if you, if you, if you think what, um, you know, we used, to, we used to say at the last election, look, we know what to do, we just don't know how to get re-elected once we've done it. And the, 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 the reason for that is that the financial crisis required difficult decisions. But look, in addition to that, we've had 2,000 people killed on the streets of Europe in terrorist attacks. We've had the biggest movement of people since the Second World War. The, the combination of fiscal crisis, austerity, the immigration crisis and the counter-terrorism crisis has created this exponential rise in uncertainty. And it's that uncertainty that has fueled something like 30 million people voting for far-right and nationalist parties across Europe over the last couple of years, plus 63, 64 million people in the United States voting for Trump. So, you know, we're dealing with a pretty systemic set of political problems, but the, the, the challenge for us is how to kind of come through that and renew our democracy again. So on Wednesday, for example, I'm being asked to vote for £5 billion to rebuild uh, you know, a crumbling museum that is slowly slipping into the Thames, otherwise known as the Houses of Parliament. If, if I talk to young people in my constituency about spending £5 billion quid on renewing an institution that they see as remote, out of touch, you know, they ask me, well why aren't you spending that money on getting e-voting to work, for instance? You know, the truth is, we should turn do it into... Do they really, Liam? I mean... Um, abs no, absolutely. They, they think it is insane that we would not basically yeah. give right, that, that building to the VNA. The Houses of Parliment is, and, is, is, a sim is the symbol of this. Um, it absolutely, and, and, is, a, but it's it absolutely not, is a symbol. And, and on Wednesday, yeah. we're being asked to vote on how we renew it in the yeah. wrong way. Yeah. Not to them. <laughs> no, no, not to them. And, I mean, you've described... I mean, the, the government does have very big challenges, and these are built up over decades, uh, some of the budget pressures and, 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 uh, and, and so on. Um, Rachel, but, well, let, sorry, let me just yeah, give you a very quick it, example. So, so in 2015, the Speaker's Digital Democracy Commission said, by 2020, mm. Parliament should be fully interactive and digital. What's happened since then? Li literally nothing apart from I can't get into my email anymore because of the security they put around it after the cyber attack. So we're, we're just not... I just Which is don't not a think step backwards. Yep. It, but we're just not taking the renewal of democracy seriously enough. And that is, an, that is an odd response, given the sort of existential angst that there is about whether democracy is working for the majority today. Rachel, do you have any? Yeah, so... Okay. I was just thinking about the extent to which this is a sort of global systemic problem. Um, and... and it's, it's very easy to draw parallels between what's happened in the US and here. And there obviously are some economic factors and sort of global factors that um, are applying to all of, the, all of the West. But I also think it's a bit of a cop-out. Um, it's sort of allowing us to fail to recognize that there are some pretty simple things that the public have been asking for that are entirely in the realm of governments to deliver, whether or not we choose to deliver them. Um, uh, that can make an enormous difference. So to give two examples, um, and we, do, we do a huge um, number of uh, focus groups in, in, in my uh, company. And it used to be you know, five years ago that if you asked people what they thought about their lunch in a focus group, their answer would be immigration. And now it's health, right? You ask them about anything in the world and all they talk about is the health system. That's a policy change you can make that would make a very big difference to how people think about whether governments are responsive. Just as, in my view, um, political parties consistently going into elections promising to reduce immigration because they did think they said to the electorate that this mattered and they're not doing it. 
that was a choice. It was totally possible for us to have done something else. So, so I think there is a there is a danger that by looking at the incredibly, genuinely incredibly difficult problems of, of productivity and stagnating wages in the West, um, we avoid recognizing that there are actually some pretty obvious and simple things the, gov- the public are asking for that we just aren't doing. But there's no political okay. consensus for the choices for and, and nor do we have systems in Parliament for generating that consensus. Or there's no consensus in the, in the country? No, I, don't, I, don't, I, th- I think actually... You know, the, the level of consensus in the country, I think, is sufficient. But, mm. but actually, in, in Parliament, there is, not, there, there is no consensus in Parliament, as has been played out over the weekend, mm. about reform of the health and social care system. Mm. There's no consensus over reform of the immigration system. Um, so, you know, the, p- Parliament and that goes is, back to my first question pa- about Parliament what is currently things not so configured in a way to take the political choices that the country now needs in a way that, funnily enough, we did find a way of doing from 1942 to 1945. <coughs> Let's take one, maybe two more questions. Let's come, come, come here on the aisle and then I'll try and come Thank back. You. Paul Evans, is the Institute trying to make Parliament better? If so, better at what? And how will you measure your success? We really focus on, on government more than Parliament. And we focus on Parliament to the extent that it uh, improves government. So it's the scrutiny bit of Parliament, if you like. It's whether uh, the government is managing to pass legislation and it's particularly the select committees um, and how they are doing their job. And Hannah White here uh, leads our work on uh, working on select committees and trying to help them get much better at asking questions and all this kind of thing. But uh, the rest of Parliament, no, that's outside our remit. And it's brilliant work. And at the back, let's take a, a, last, a last question. It's an interesting question, though, um, in itself. If, if that were our remit, how would you measure the improvement in Parliament? I'll discuss with you afterwards over a glass of wine. Um, thank you. Um, I'm Amy Mount from Green Alliance, and I think it was yesterday when Nick Timothy um, uh, accused the government of strategic confusion for prioritising the environment um, uh, sort of in the past few months, I suppose. Um, and there's a lot of things you could discuss about that, but you know, from a long term perspective, um, I feel, I think a lot of people feel that um, ecological resilience is, you know, is, is an important thing for this country to be in, investing in and leading on. And I wonder, uh, g- given the sort of topic of your, of your lecture just now, if there's still a, a sort of marked tendency within government to focus on the, the pressing issues, the near term, and Brexit being the sort of extreme example of that, um, to the uh, detriment of some of those, those longer-term but still very fundamental issues. Thanks for that. That has to be a political decision. People express in elections what they want, and the environment very, you know, very often is part of that and what they want from government, and they make that clear. Um, our remit is not to tell government what it should do, and certainly not to tell the British people what they should um, what they should vote for. It's to tell government how to do its work better when it's decided what that is. And I would concede with the first bit of your question, sometimes a bit of confusion in that. But that's look, that's as far as I can go on that, because the, this is what we do, and we don't do that. Thank you for that. Um, we've now reached the uh, end of of this, um, but it doesn't mean we have to stop talking. Please uh, do stay, come next door for a glass of wine, and thank you all very much, and thank you to the terrific IFG team who's uh, helped in this uh, fantastic year we've had. Thank you all, and thank you. Thank you.